0: We have a kids class every week Uh, at this time kids are welcome to go to that class if you haven't already it just meets if you're not aware it just meets in the back room here at the back of this larger room and also if you're not aware we have a nursery available every week that meets in the corner room over here uh, That's fully staffed and you're more than welcome to make use of that. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 16. We're just about uh, through this book. I think by the time that uh, we finish it up, we will have had something like 50 sermons together uh, in this book and uh, just about to come to the conclusion of it. Uh, A few weeks back, I was chatting with someone and asked him what he did for work, and he relayed to me that he was an electrical engineer. And so I just started asking him several questions about that. And then after I did that, he turned and asked me uh, what I did. And I told him that I was a pastor. And so he started asking me questions about what that involved. And I just uh, tried to explain it simply. I said that according to the Bible, a pastor uh, really has three main responsibilities. You can think of a pastor, uh, number one, as a preacher slash teacher. Uh, And number two, you could think of him as a shepherd slash example. And number three, you could think of him as an administrator slash leader. Uh, That third uh, kind of category, uh, I think about one of the titles for a pastor in scripture is the word overseer, uh, very much conveying that administrator slash leader idea. That third component is more important than the average pastor or church member probably realizes, uh, and perhaps that 's because it 's often uh, something that takes place behind the scenes, and it typically doesn 't feel as urgent as the first two responsibilities uh, it 's been said, however, that most pastors don 't fail in the pulpit; they fail in administration. The church needs good leadership and administration, and the church needs that not just with its pastors, uh, not just from its pastors and elders, but also from others as well ministry leaders, uh, other individuals. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-11, we see Paul functioning in that third role. He's functioning as an administrator slash leader. And there are many lessons that we can glean from what we see and read in these verses. The fact of the matter is is that good leadership and administration promote ministry. Ministry hangs in the balance. Uh, Follow along as I read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 16. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Uh, Together this morning, we'd like to consider three significant matters of leadership and administration. First, handling finances well promotes ministry. Verse 1 begins, now concerning the collection for the saints, uh, Paul now turns his attention to a matter that the Corinthians had apparently written him about, this thing called the collection. They've got questions about it. They've, perhaps when he was there before, they talked about it, uh, and they have some follow-up questions. What is this whole collection that they speak of or that Paul writes about? Other New Testament passages indicate that Paul was organizing a massive offering to relieve Jewish Christians in Jerusalem uh, who were apparently in dire straits financially, probably due to a famine and perhaps also persecution. And this collection that that Paul is organizing is actually going to span two whole continents. It will include multiple Gentile churches, and it is going to take several years to accomplish. And rich and poor alike are going to give to it. And in the end, uh, the contributing churches sent a minimum of something like eight to nine delegates to Jerusalem with the money to relieve the poor Jewish Christians living there. Paul is the one who organized this vast financial enterprise. Look at verse 1. He writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Paul now directs the Corinthians about what to do regarding this offering, just as he had already done with the churches in in the, the region of Galatia. And what we learn about handling uh, what we learn about handling finance as well is that generosity is a big deal in God's eyes. Uh, look at verse two. It says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Uh, this verse teaches that financial generosity is for every Christian. Verse two says, Each of you, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up. And he's speaking to people who are both wealthy and poor. Everyone was to take part in this. Uh, Keep your finger here and turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 5 together of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, In this passage, Paul commends the Macedonian Christians who gave generously to this exact same collection Uh, And they gave when they themselves were in in extreme poverty. In fact, probably an offering could have been taken up for them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll just read verses 1 to 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. We find the secret there of the Macedonians' generosity in verse 5. It says that they gave themselves first to the Lord. Uh, These these people didn't have much money at all, and yet they're giving to their brothers in Christ in in Jerusalem. And we find that God had these people, and he had their hearts. And anytime that is the case, whenever that's the case, he'll have our finances too. Uh, Practically, though, there are steps that we can take to be generous givers. Financial generosity requires methodical preparation. Paul doesn't just tell the Corinthians, uh, here's how this collection is going to work. He actually tells them, here's how it's not going to work. How's it not going to work? Well, in verse two, he says, there will be no collecting when I come. Verses six to nine indicate that Paul was writing uh, sometime in the spring or perhaps before. He references the day of Pentecost, which we can pin on the calendar. And he hopes to come to Corinth for the winter. And what he's telling them, he's saying, listen, guys, don't wait until I get there in Corinth six to eight months from now, and and then we're we're not going to do that, and then try to take up this massive offering all of a sudden, all at once, in some kind of high-pressure, last-minute, emotional way. And part of what's probably going on here is many of these people were very likely living from week to week. And if they waited, they probably wouldn't take up much of an offering at all. They wouldn't have much to give. And so Paul explains here's how it's going to work. Look at verse 2 again. He says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Financial generosity requires methodical preparation. Paul directs these people to set something aside and it's a little bit unclear if they're supposed to do that at home or at their church uh, but they're still supposed to set something aside each week for this special offering and I think you can probably see what's happening here for 25 to 30 weeks in a row this special offering this collection that they're taking up is incrementally growing. I noticed that a farmer near me must have had a logger drop off a a couple loads of logs, either to heat his home or perhaps a shop or something like that. But uh, this pile of logs looks like from from the road as I drive by it, it looks like it's probably 20 feet tall, full-length logs. He has this enormous amount of wood that needs split. How is he going to get that done? Well, he's got a couple options. One option is he could call up a bunch of uh, friends and neighbors and family members and everybody could bring their chainsaws and wood splitters and axes and they could just go at it hardcore all in one day and try to get it done. And that would probably work. But what it looks like this guy is doing is going out once a week or or some other kind of increment and getting a little bit more done as he's able. And you're seeing uh, this massive pile of logs slowly but steadily get cut up and split and stacked. If he does that consistently every week, he'll eventually split that massive pile of logs. And Paul is encouraging God's people to be generous in in a a fashion that's very, very similar to that. The average person may not be able to give in massive one-time lump sums. I'd, I'd imagine that the average person sitting here, you can't just drop this huge sum of money on the table anytime you want to do that. But when we're intentional and methodical and consistent over time, we're able to make sizable ministry promoting contributions with the earthly treasure that God has given us. I suspect the Corinthians gave significantly more to this special offering than they would uh, if they had given all at once and waited until Paul arrived. Uh, and that said, though, it's important to remember that financial generosity is to be proportional. To what? Well, verse 2 says that this was to be done as he or each person may prosper. Some of you may make a lot of money and others of you uh, may barely be able to make ends meet. And what that means when it comes to financial generosity is that uh, generosity is going to look different from person to person. It's going to vary. And that's great. If your finances are a chaotic mess, it's going to be very, very hard to be generous. And how you steward the earthly treasure that God has entrusted to you, uh, that matters. And and, and ministry uh, is tied to this. I just want to mention a big picture here. Really, everything that we do with our money—whether it's it's giving generously or trying to steward it to manage our other areas of life—all of that matters to God. And maybe you have a lot of good practices and uh, good processes in place with that. By God's grace, you're doing well. And maybe you look at it and go, "Yep, yeah, m- my finances are—they are chaotic, and I need help. And I don't feel like I'm managing my money well, really, in any way. And that's hindering me from being generous. And I need help there." Uh, I just want to mention that uh, we just started offering during table time a financial class uh, that that looks at finances from a biblical perspective, not just the realm of generosity, but managing your your finances as a whole. And uh, I just want to commend that to you. We plan to keep offering it. And if you think you'd be helped by that, uh, we would love to have you be a part of that class in the future. Generosity is a big deal in God's eyes, but along with that, integrity and accountability are also a big deal in God's eyes in this regard. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Uh, The Corinthians can't e-transfer their money to Jerusalem, right? They they can't do what you and I do and just log into their bank account and, okay, let's just send it on its way to Jerusalem. The Corinthian church needed to choose men, uh, and we note here that choose men plural, more than one, uh, men that they highly trusted to hand deliver this financial gift. Uh, To get to Jerusalem uh, from Corinth, the, the, the straightest shot was to go by sea or they could go all the way around by land. Uh, but highly trusted men, plural. And then notice as well how careful Paul is with this. He keeps himself one step removed from the money itself. You pick your men, and they'll get it there. Uh, he, he's, he's removed a bit. And what we see is a healthy set of checks and balances to avoid uh, not just the opportunity for impropriety, but also the appearance of it. Trust and transparency are a big deal, especially in ministry. Uh, While it's easy to believe that fraud could never happen in your church with all of these wonderful, lovely people, consider these cases. A church treasurer embezzled $850,000 by distributing funds to himself through a credit line. He had access to four officers' digital signatures. Uh, His crime led to eight years in prison and the requirement to pay the money back. A 55-year-old church bookkeeper embezzled a modest $3,000 but was sentenced to eight, eight years in prison. A church usher collected offerings in the sanctuary balcony and then pocketed loose bills on the way down the stairs. And over a number of years, he stole several thousand dollars. A church bookkeeper embezzled thousands by issuing checks to a fictitious company. When these things happen, credibility is lost uh, inside the church and outside of the church as well. Don't lose sight of the big picture here. Good leadership and administration promote ministry instead of taking away from it. 2,000 years ago, Paul advocated for internal financial controls within the church of Corinth. Handling finances well personally and collectively promotes ministry. We turn our attention now to a second significant matter of leadership and administration. Planning appropriate, appropriately promotes ministry. In verses 5 to 9, Paul lays out his travel and ministry plans. And again, we're, we're talking about how good leadership and administration, they promote ministry. And that includes Planning. These verses are a good reminder that you need a balanced perspective on a few things. You need a balanced perspective on ministry planning and ministry opportunities and ministry limitations. First, you need a balanced perspective on ministry planning. Look with me at verses five to nine and notice how Paul is is going to delineate here his itinerary. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul knows uh, where he wants to go, when he wants to go there, and what he wants to do there. And we can trace his planned itinerary. Kind of piece it together in this passage. It starts in Ephesus. That's where he's writing from. And he says, My intention is to stay in Ephesus until around the time of Pentecost. And then I want to go... Uh, So he's there in the spring and then in Macedonia, he'd be there uh, passing through there in the summer, perhaps part of the fall, and he said, I want to end up in Corinth for winter and then after that, I would potentially go off to Jerusalem with the delegates with this special collection. That's his itinerary. It's important to plan. Uh, It's been said that those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Whether it be churches or ministry leaders or individual Christians, we're all wise to plan our ministry endeavors, whatever those may be. And some of you you just love planning, right? I just love it when when everything's all on the calendar and it's all just tick, 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 and it's all laid out, right? Some of you just thrive on that and others of you struggle with that. Uh, And we're all kind of somewhere on this spectrum And, and what's highlighted here is the importance of planning and yet with that, it's also important to be flexible, Paul includes at least five phrases that exemplify that idea in this text. And it starts in verse 3 where uh, he speaks about coming to Corinth. And at the beginning of the verse he says, And when I arrive, which could actually be translated whenever I arrive. There's a a, a whenever-ness to his plans. And in verse 5 he says that I intend to pass through Macedonia. That's my intention And verse 6, perhaps I will stay with you. Verse 7, I hope to spend time with you. And verse 7, it's just very clear, if the Lord permits. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ is Lord of our ministry schedules and plans, and his will trumps all. And we need to be flexible. All of Paul's ministry movements are tentative. All of them. 2 Corinthians indicates that the the plans that Paul lays out here in this text were altered. He ended up making some kind of emergency trip from Ephesus to Corinth, probably by sea, there and back. And that trip did not go particularly well. He hadn't planned to make it. He felt like he needed to, and it didn't go well. It was a hard visit with the Corinthians, and he comes back, and then he gets back to his itinerary. You have a responsibility to plan for ministry, but it needs to be okay for God to change those plans and wreck those plans however and whenever God would like to do that. The last few years, I think, have been a great and humbling reminder of this to me personally and I'd imagine to many of you. I know our elders found during COVID that we couldn't plan for six months. We couldn't even plan for six days. We could hardly plan for six hours. And I found that just personally extremely frustrating on the one hand and very humbling on the other because God was at work throughout that entire time. And his plans are always superior to ours. And you and I need a balanced perspective on ministry planning that recognizes the importance of planning but also recognizes the importance of flexibility and God's sovereign will in all of this. You also need a balanced perspective on ministry opportunities Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul's writing from Ephesus and he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Uh, Paul, as I mentioned, he's writing from Ephesus. He intends to stay there until Pentecost and he explains why. He explains that not only had uh, God flung open a door for him, but that door was staying open. God had flung the ministry door of opportunity wide open for Paul there. It's staying open and he goes, I need to seize it. I should take this. I need to stay here at Ephesus for a little while. But note the juxtaposition in verse 9. What we see is that there's this wide open ministry door that sounds incredible. And yet it's accompanied, Paul says, by many adversaries. The greatest ministry opportunities are rarely easy convenient or unopposed that's just often how it works great ministry opportunities and open doors are often accompanied by many difficulties and often many obstacles and opponents we're not typically left to pursue open doors of ministry in an unhindered fashion and so i think we're just wise don't be surprised by that these things tend to surprise it's like i was serving god and everything was going so great and then it got hard Great opportunities and serious difficulties go hand in hand. And I think we just need to know that when God opens a door like what he did for Paul there in Ephesus, Satan's going to do everything in his power to keep you from walking in it, through it and hindering you. You need a balanced perspective on ministry opportunities. Often the greatest opportunities are accompanied by great difficulty. And third, you need a, a balanced perspective on ministry limitations. Just want to draw your attention briefly back up into verse 4. Paul says, he's talking about the collection. If it seems advisable that I should go also, then they, the delegates, will accompany me on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, Delegates from several churches are going to take this massive offering there to Jerusalem. And just remember for a moment this offering, this collection, it's Paul's baby. He's the one organizing this uh, transcontinental, massive offering of all of these churches for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And now he's saying, I might not even go. It's taken him years to organize it and seeing it across the finish line is going to be so special. It's going to be something that unites Jewish and Gentile churches. It's going to be a rich blessing to these people. But in verse 4, Paul indicates they might not even go? What would Paul cause Paul to consider not going and uh not doing that and seeing this across the finish line and in short i think one of the answers is other ministry paul explained elsewhere that he had a burning desire to go to rome it's been on his radar for a long time he wants to get to rome and minister there and from corinth uh, rome and uh, jerusalem are literally 180 degrees in opposite opposite directions And despite Paul's big, huge heart for ministry, he's one man. And he's going to have to strategically pick which place to go based on wise counsel and seeking the Lord's face. And he's going to go one place, and that's going to mean he says no to the other, at least for the time being. Paul recognized uh, that in that instance that these delegates, they're good men. These are good men full of character who can be trusted. These churches have picked them. And it might just be best for those men to see this thing through across the finish line without me, so that ministry can be multiplied elsewhere. Good leaders and administrators make good decisions on when they're needed and when they're not. And, and for you, you need to you need to understand that and know your personal limitations. You can't be everywhere at once. And sometimes people think that they can, and they try, and they make those attempts. And if you try, what's probably going to happen is you're going to end up doing less ministry at the end of the day. And good chance you're going to let a lot of people down in the process. There's something remarkable just about the, 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 and powerful about faithful and consistent plodding along in ministry. Paul knows he can't be everywhere. He can't go everywhere. He can't go and do everything. He just keeps chugging along. You may be familiar with the name John Gill. He was a prolific Baptist writer and author in the 18th century in London. Uh, he wrote several works, uh, some of which would include the first English single uh, author whole Bible commentary. It was nine volumes. He wrote the whole thing by himself. He wrote the first Baptist systematic theology, which was two volumes. The systematic theology is ba- basically covering all the main uh, doctrinal headings. Um, In scripture, he wrote various other tracts, treatises, and technical Hebrew works. And after studying Gil's life, one person noted this. He said, I expected his life to involve sacrifice, perhaps early hours, a poor marriage, or neglecting his congregation. But this person writes that Ripon's A Brief Memoir surprised me, a, a book about Gil. He says, Gil didn't work at an insane schedule. He pastored from age 21 to 74, and he never burnt out. And this person noted that Gil had actually a a manageable schedule. He says, We've all heard of men who woke at 3 a.m. to pray, yet Gil wasn't an early riser or a night owl. Indeed, the older he got, the longer he rested. He, Gil, didn't think that this was a weakness. Rather, when asked how he had achieved such vast labors, the man had done a ton throughout his lifetime. He answered, it was not done by very early rising nor sitting up late. He said the latter, he was confident, must be injurious to any student and not helpful. The truth is, this person writes, he rose as soon as it was light in the winter and usually before six in the summer. And, and I, a lot of planning, it's not just planning your schedule and your itinerary. It's also planning your energy and what you can do. You're a human being who only has so much time and so much energy and God has summoned you to manage it well and effectively. Planning appropriately promotes ministry. And if you can acquire a healthy perspective on ministry planning and the the opportunities in front of you and your own ministry limitations and what you can legitimately do and what you can't, and if you're all in for the Lord, you'll be much more effective. And a third significant matter of leadership and administration to consider this morning Dealing with problems promotes ministry. Uh, If you don't weed a garden, the weeds will eventually take over and they will choke out the life of what you've planted. The weeds of sin, conflict, and so many other things will choke the life right out of a church. And Paul, remember, he planted the church of Corinth. He said, "I, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Paul planted this church, and he's not about to let the weeds choke it out and kill this thing. And though you might not catch it at first glance, I think that's exactly what he's doing in verses 10 to 11. Paul foresees a potential problem. He recognizes there's a problem coming up, it's on the horizon, and he deals with it. And then he provides biblical solutions for its resolution. And that's what good leaders and administrators do with the gardens that God has entrusted to them. Uh, So with that in mind, look at verses 10 and 11 with me. He tells the Corinthians, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, through Paul's example here, we see that good leadership tries to foresee problems. You can't always do that, but good leadership tries. Paul's relationship, I think it's important for us to note because this might not be in the back of our minds as we read this text. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is under an immense amount of strain. And to further compound that, just think about what we've studied in this book. He's writing them a letter, and he's literally calling them out time and time and time again. You've got to deal with this. This unrepentant man in your midst, deal with it. What you're doing is wrong. And what you're doing with your, your Christian liberties and all that, you've got some big issues you need to deal with there. And just time and time again in this book, he's doing that, that very type of thing. And he's doing this because he loves them. And he loves this church and he loves the gospel and he wants to see these people thrive and grow and the gospel go forward through them. Turn back to 1 Corinthians four sixteen and 17 just to get a little bit of our context here of what's going on. Paul's saying all these hard things. In chapter 4, Verses 16 and 17, he says, I urge you then be imitators of me. And then verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy. He sent Timothy and he's currently on his way to Corinth. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Okay, so Paul's trying to deal with all these problems and trying to to get them to live a gospel-centered life in accordance with Pauline doctrine, and he's sending Timothy to keep that ball moving in the right direction. Young Timothy is Paul's ministerial protege, and, and maybe we could even say clone. And he's on his way to Corinth to teach Pauline doctrine. And if these people in Corinth had trouble with the Apostle Paul, how do you think they're going to treat his younger messenger? Would you want to be Timothy? Walking into that? Timothy is a remarkable young man, and Paul did not hesitate to send him straight into messes just like this with confidence. Elsewhere, he tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul is proactively dealing with the problem so that Timothy can show up in Corinth and have a productive ministry with these people. And he's got Timothy's back. He foresees this problem. Good leadership tries to foresee problems that way, and good leadership deals with problems. Uh, in the moment, it's always, uh, it, it always feels easier to not deal with problems, right? And Paul could sit there. I mean, Paul's in Ephesus. Like, I'm going to send Timothy and... Good luck. Hope it goes well for all of you. Dealing with problems can be scary because there's almost always an immediate, upfront potential risk. If I deal with these, maybe the Corinthian church is going to split. Maybe some Corinthians are going to leave. Maybe somebody's going to get a bee in their bonnet or this or that or the other. Maybe it's just, we'll just try to keep the peace. But that's not Paul. Paul. Because he knows that long term gain far outweighs the immediate risk of not dealing with the issues. Paul's not trying to get the Corinthians to like him. He loves them, and he wants what's best for these people. And he's willing to have hard conversations with them, even if those conversations are hard for him and hard for them. And he's going to do that regardless of how he thinks these people might respond. If we do not deal with our problems, what inevitably will happen is our problems deal with us. Taking it one step further, Paul's not just foreseeing a problem and and taking the steps to deal with it. Part of that is, is good leadership also provides biblical solutions. These people need help. They need scriptural guidance. And so Paul tells the Corinthians what a biblical response to Timothy and his ministry would look like. And he says things like this in verses 10 and 11. He says, put him at ease among you. Timothy should not have to come and be afraid of if you're going to even receive him or not. Put him at ease among you and recognize him as a minister of the Lord. Do not despise him. Help him on his way at peace. He's doing God's work. Don't cause him to be fearful, don't stubbornly resist and intimidate him. Don't despise or dismiss a minister when he's saying exactly what I Paul said to you. Whether the Corinthians, whether it's the Corinthians then or it's us today, when someone stands up and they preach to us Pauline doctrine, which is exactly what Timothy was being sent to do. When they preach Pauline Doctrine, what would we call that? We'd call that the Bible, right? we call that our New Testament. When someone preaches Pauline Doctrine to us, whether that doctrine sits well with us or, or whether we like its truths or not, we should consider the true tr- pre- preaching of God's word whoever it might come through. However great their oratory skill is or not, however young or old they are or not, if someone stands up to us, stands in front of us, and they, they give us the word of God, We should consider God's word as a special gift and be grateful for those through whom it comes. And that's what Paul's telling these people. Timothy's coming with Pauline doctrine, which you haven't particularly liked and received very well. And when Timothy comes, you receive it. Dealing with problems promotes ministry. What if Paul doesn't deal with this? It's disaster in the making. Here at Beaumont Baptist Church, our elders and our ministry leaders and each individual believer here engaged in the work of ministry needs to be willing to deal with problems and sometimes even have hard conversations where needed. And the fact of the matter is, you you cannot go through church life very long without those conversations being needed. You just can't because we're all sinners and we all need people to have conversations with, with us from time to time. I need people having conversations like that with me. You need them too. We all do. There's a great deal hanging in the balances in its ministry. And so maybe I'd ask you here, is there anything that you maybe proactively need to address for the sake of ministry and the great commission and the gospel going forward and here at Beaumont Baptist Church or in your friend's life? And I think it's just always easier to keep punting and keep kicking it down the road or shove it under the rug. But that, that doesn't help people. That doesn't help the ministry. That doesn't help the people you love. And sometimes by the grace of God, we need to be willing to have speak the truth and love uh, so that ministry doesn't suffer and the gospel goes forward and people grow. Good leadership and administration promote ministry And we've just seen three examples of that together here this morning. I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes.